Hey everybody, welcome to episode 93 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitchell and I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Aaron Bay in Whitby, Ontario. Hi there. And we have Jaime Lopez over there in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And down in San Jose, California, we have Mark Rubin. Hello. Alrighty then. Wow, that was easy. You make it look easy. Yeah. Well. So smooth, so natural. So, yes, Jaime, do you want to lead us into the follow-up? Yeah, there's, there's quite a bit. Um, one was related to me personally, where you guys were having some conjecture as to where I was, and there was some confusion at the time of the episode recording. Um, I was attending Google I.O., but not in Shoreline, California. I was in one of the extended events. So Google has many um, sites that it has extended events at, you know, the Seattle area, specifically Kirkland, Washington, was where this was taking place. So I was sitting there in one of those. You know, it's By the way, there, Googlers. Is, hmm? there is no such place as Shoreline, California. Oh, really? Was it just it's, like the Shoreline? A, well, it's Mountain View is the, is the city that it's in, but the road that it's on is uh, Shoreline Boulevard, and there's the Shoreline Amphitheater, which is right right by there. Oh, so it's describing but, your area. Sorry, I, that was my mistake. So real-time feedback uh, there. Yeah. Yep. So the Mountain View area, I was not there. I was still relatively close to my home. So just in case anybody was wondering... Yes, I would have had beers with you guys uh, had I been down there, but uh, I was not. <laughs> um, the other one, a uh, bit of FU. So we kind of touched on this, and, and several other folks touched on this, where the um, relation to Google Assistant and those, and you know, like the Amazon Echo and the ecosystem or vendor lock-in stuff. I think that's absolutely true to some extent, right? Like if you're, you know, hey, go get me a car or get me some flowers. It's almost certainly going to be Uber. It's almost certainly going to be 1-800-Flowers. Those are the kind of, you know, early adopters, early participants and market players that the Googles, Amazons, and hypothetically Apples will do. I mean, for the, the ease of use thing, sure, it, it would probably be a little bit nicer if you could configure those sorts of things. And I do think that for something like the Echo, which has its own um, skills, that you know any developer can develop for, and you, you run it through an app store like process, uh, that probably assuages some of those concerns. Um, and in fact, from the like Apple ecosystem part, I find it kind of funny that people are worried about that from the Google side, considering that Google tends to open up this sorts of thing. And if anything, we have clear evidence that Apple does not open up this sort of thing, like with Siri, which has never been open to begin with. Yeah, but which also has never plugged into any third-party service you know, has never chosen for us. And that's kind of where the problem comes insofar as it actually might be a problem. But like, look at the, the business incentives, right? Like everything Apple does is like always about lockdown and they sort of uh, culturally begrudgingly open things up. They never start open, like to begin with, can you change your browser on iOS? Like your default one? No, you, of course not. You can't. But no, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that they, they are. Um, I'm just saying that when I'm, uh, this is about what I said last night week, right? Like, I don't remember about, specifically, uh, but it, it certainly okay. I've heard it echoed in you know other media as well. I'm sorry. I'm just saying what they were, what they've, what we've been seeing from all these vendors is demonstrating with particular uh, partners, right? So that's the only thing that I'm concerned about is that there will always be this lock-in, as we're calling it. So I, I just worry that. You know, it's always going to be that way, and there's um, sort of a, a, a great deal of hand waving in these demos. 
um, that kind of freaks me out, you know, and, and, um, you know, the thing about Google and the way that it does its um, presentations every year at I.O. and other events, when they sort of hand wave things, it's never really a good sign um, of for the future of the technology. Because, I mean, we've seen so many of their products that they've introduced in previous I.O.s uh, fizzle or, or not get developed. And I have a feeling that this might be different. I mean, I, th- I think that Google probably recognizes how important voice-activated assistants are, but I'm still worried about that. And yes, of course, they're going to have an API. They've announced that they will. And for that matter, it looks like Siri might finally get an API this year from the news that we've been reading. So, you know, the race is on, but, you know, just from all the demonstrations I'd seen, it didn't look like they were struggling too hard to make it appear like this was going to be an open system that anybody could readily participate in. Right. They they didn't talk enough about that story and it it could also be because it's still really early i mean they didn't even commit to like a specific month that the thing would come out so for all we know it you know could be early fall it could be you know december just in time for the holidays or something so maybe they haven't really figured that out right like they still have the the cultural aspect of like doing things or sorry talking about things well 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 in advance of them actually releasing them a little bit less so since they separated out the crazy moon strike things like you know all, all into the alphabet pieces so you didn't really see like a google glass equivalent of like hey this thing never really shipped and it never did anything even close to what was promised in the concept video uh, right everything they showed is like much more likely to ship and much closer in near term they're they're much more focused products um rather than uh sort of nebulous clusters of gee whiz technology i would say right uh is there anything that you wanted to like uh that that stuck with you from the io announcement last week that you want to bring forward in this fu so there's there's two um because i think you guys actually covered the the ones the other yeah we covered the assistant stuff but we really didn't talk too much about the other stuff right and i think two so so uh the, the the larger one is Firebase, um, but the the smaller one um, is Android Instant Apps, which I'm surprised it hasn't gotten as much play in in the media and ecosystem uh, podcast as as I would have expected. And, and I think part of that is is Google's fault because it used a really bad example to start out with. Um, so what's it, what's it about? What what is uh, Android Instant Apps? The, this essential idea is that you would not have to install like an entire app in order to get functionality. Mm-hmm. So a, a better example than the one they started out with is, you know, if you go to some parking meter and there's like 20 of these things, at least in the Seattle area, and I've always failed to download the app because I'm like, <laughs> you know what? I don't need 20 of these darn apps and go wonder which one is the one that has the car, you know, the car stall that I'm associated with. But with this Android instant apps piece, I wouldn't really have to worry about that. Right. I, I, go i probably scan a barcode or tap an nfc something in any case i find some mechanism by which i get the information i need um it pulls up a tiny slice of that app so more like a a module as they talked about it that would have just the hey you know here's how much your fee will be and now you can use android pay to pay for everything so i don't have to put in my credit card i don't have to put any sort of address information it just sort of seamlessly works right it's it's like some mixture of like with you remember what like Java applets were like in the browser, kind of like that, right. but but yeah. less terrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, or something like an app extension without having to have the app on your device, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think people really, at least from everything that I heard, really stuck on the the first example they gave of BuzzFeed, which is an awful example. And I think they tried a little too hard to, to play nice with their partner, right? BuzzFeed is really just consumable content. Like I'm going to watch a video or I'm going to read some sort of funny comment or I'm going to look at some sort of picture. You don't need an app for that. The web does that really well. The mm-hmm. payment example um, for the parking meters or e-commerce bits, it's particularly e-commerce where I'm like, you know what? I really don't want yet another login for some site that sells, you know, dog toys or one that sells baseball caps or whatever the case may be, right? Like Apple Pay and Android Pay, they've sort of solved that problem. But from the app developer side, um, it's perfectly fine. Like you may not need an install. You might be totally okay just getting the service side of like, yeah, somebody paid us money for this physical good or Mm -hmm. for the subscription piece. So I think that one was a, a little underrated considering that not only is it reducing the friction for installing apps by removing the need to actually install them and keep them around, but it mm-hmm. goes all the way back to Jelly Bean, which is 4.1, and 6.x is the one that's coming out for Android N. Oh, actually, I have a quick question on the instant apps. Uh, I mean, are they actually Android apps, or are they web apps that are just kind of given the Android name and to to associate them with mobile, or you know? So they, they actually are Android apps, or more specifically, they are different um, build assets from an Android app. So they, they mm-hmm. claimed you know, you know take about a day to do this sort of change, depending on your particular app. And let's, let's just assume they're dirty liars or they're way overestimating. Let's assume it takes mm-hmm. you two weeks to do this, right? Like I'm being super paranoid about it. W- within two weeks, you could have this sort of thing where um, it's using the some mechanism related to app indexing is what I would guess, you know, like on, on iOS, if you own like twitter.com, you tap on a link that would go to twitter.com. But since you have the app installed, it will take you to the Twitter app instead and deep link you to that particular bit of content. This is following a very similar mechanism as far as I can tell where, you know, you, you, you would load up, you know, some parking meter.com's um, link. And it's like, Oh, well, there's this instant app available. Let's use that instead. So I think it functions very similar to that. You can imagine this doesn't really, it's not going to work for every app, right? Like this is something that some app vendors will be excited about. I can imagine like your parking meter example sounds like a potential use case for that. Many apps probably wouldn't be like, I'm thinking of productivity tools um, this could be a deficit of imagination, but is it likely that someone making a to-do app would ever run into a situation where their app would be modularized and served up from a web page? Possibly, I guess. Maybe. Maybe that's the explanation for why there has not been full-throated support from all developers everywhere that you've heard of. And then, of course, as I'm speaking, the other possibility occurs to me, and that is that, well, only 4% of Android users are even using this version of the OS that supports it. No, no. So oh, so that's, that's two different things. So one, I think, okay. is that... Yeah, that is um, two different things. <laughs> like, the one I know that the Android folks are going to beat me up on is, if I don't address, is the fact that this goes all the way back to Jelly Bean, so it, I'd have yeah, to look up the stats. Old, yeah. But it's not the latest and greatest. It's not oh, Android okay. N or Lollipop or Marshmallow, um, which are still, like, I think the vast majority now, um, or at least 50% combined. This goes all the way to Jelly Beans. This is like as ancient as you might reasonably want to go. 
So Google actually laid the groundwork for this apparently over the last several years. So those sneaky devils. I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I would just swag it and say like, eh, it's probably like eighty percent of Android devices would support this. Yeah, we have this. We had a link on our um, show that that showed an actual install base. It was a uh, online chart. Maybe it was from Google actually. Yeah, they do publish a chart, but um, it's it's kind of difficult to keep in your head because it is so very fragmented mm-hmm. uh, that there is a large slice that are still on the 4.0 series and uh, it sort of declines as you get more recent. Uh, but no, okay, I, I take that back. But uh, so maybe maybe it is the case that, I mean, if, if this is true, right, if developers are not um, as excited as you suppose they should be, uh, it may be that there are not a lot of developers or not a lot of categories of app that are seeing the poten- uh, potential benefits of this. I think you're right to some respect because it's it's the sort of thing where you have almost certainly some sort of service related piece, right? Um, like an Uber or a parking meter or some e-commerce things, just something where the the app itself is not really the point. It's used as more just like a means to an end to get some sort of other thing. Whereas a productivity right. tool like a to-do list keeper would, like the app is the entire purpose, right? Like you, you're not like, oh, I, I tossed in a to-do item and then like it just went off into the ether and I never care about it. You actually do care a lot about keeping that record around. Well, I guess we'll see over time, right? Um, and, and the interesting thing that I, I think uh, about this is how it is an entirely novel feature that is Android only. So there are a lot of apps that are iOS and Android, and so here is something that if you were on a cross-disciplinary team in a, in a big company, for example, you might have the Android team saying, hey, you know, uh, we've got this new instant app feature. Let's try using it in this thing. Um, and the iOS team obviously can't offer something like that. And I wonder how many situations like those would be out there. Yeah, and I think from what I can tell, and I don't know for sure, so if there's any... Um Android folks or Googlers out there who could correct me if I'm wrong, I believe this is also very uh, Google-specific. So I believe this is making use of things in Google Play services and stuff that Google has access to. Oh, so the sense. AOSP, <laughs> the open source bits like you know CyanogenMod or Amazon's you know fork of, of Android would be completely unable to take part in this sort of uh-huh. scheme. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, because that's um, actually that's something I was meaning to ask you about, Jaime, because with all this talk about um, about the fragmentation of the platform, I've been reading a lot about it in the last week uh, from all kinds of quarters. People saying that uh, the the huge concern uh, with um, with Android versions not being adopted by vendors. And there's an article today uh, talking about how Google is, is trying to pull some levers to get vendors to support upgrades to their phones to support the latest versions of Android, which is sort of an annual ritual that you hear about from Google because this has been a problem for a long time. At the same time, uh, we know that Google Play Services is kind of their, um, their framework that runs across Android versions. Uh, which which Google can leverage to continue to support sort of modern features, right? And that doesn't seem to be talked about at all. So I'm wondering if there are limitations to Google Play services such that they can't support versions uh, or, or features that are more modern, um, obviously notwithstanding uh, instant apps. But uh, is are there limitations to Google Play services that are kind of coming out now that you know of? Sure. I mean, not specific ones, but I'll, I'll give some examples. Like, um, 
you know, you, we've talked about the fact that unlike on iOS, where we're kind of worrying about this like um, Swift ABI thing that you guys right. touched on briefly, um, there is the sort of the the side door aspect where you can su- use the support libraries. So let's take for example when um, Marshmallow came, or sorry, Lolly. Lollipop, I think it was Lollipop, Android 5 came out and Google came out with the material design aspect, uh, which pretty much said, like, if you use their standard widgets, you know, toolbars, buttons, that sort of thing, you would just get the material design look and feel for free for the most part. Um, that wasn't true for folks who were running on, like, you know, uh, Jelly Bean or Ice Cream Sandwich, you know, predecessor operating systems. But there is a support library available for that that would give you most of the bits. So it would give you, you know, the, um, this is circular, this has a, a two-tone color, that sort of thing, stuff that's easy to do, but it can't get you a hundred percent of the way there for things that require, you know, uh, better GPU access, like the, the Z index stuff that gives you the fancy shadows or some of the fancier, um, transition animations just wouldn't work on older versions of Android. Like there's of only course. so far that they can go. And you meant Z index, right? Because I didn't understand that thing you just said. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Not X, <laughs> not Y, but Z. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Go on, please. No, I mean that's. I think that's, that's very it. much yes. it, right? Like just Google doing whatever it can to pull things back into uh, itself being the the controlling piece, despite the fact that technically Android is open source. Um, so that's, yes. that's it for the instant apps part. Um, the the other thing that was was pretty neat for me, um, and, and certainly. I think for folks listening out there is uh, Firebase. So we've talked about the fact that uh, Parse was uh, really a really big thing. It still continues to be. Um, it's coming to the end of its life uh, less than a year from now. And Firebase uh, was acquired by Google a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was at the time more or less just like what they called their real-time database, roughly equivalent to the uh, online data storage uh, database storage that uh, parse offered but wasn't anywhere near as as capable now firebase is under google's wing and has grown tremendously to offer many more features to be more or less an equivalent of taking um parses functionality mm-hmm. the, like the full slew of things that it did and fabric if folks remember us talking about that right the crash reporting and um analytics and what else uh, ad serving pieces that uh, that Twitter has with that whole suite. So I, I mean, I could just talk about these super. I'm just going to list these in no particular order. It's uh, real time DB hosting of website content, authentication, which includes social email and verification logins, storage like file storage, cloud messaging and or notifications, remote configuration, test lab, crash reporting, app indexing, dynamic links, invites, AdWords, AdMob, and analytics. So yeah. it's, it's huge. And, and the, the, the thing about it is that it, unlike parse, which does let you do like some limited amount of things, uh, more than just sort of the out of the box on rails experience, this is much more integrated into Google's, um, more mature, uh, or, or more, more flexible offerings, right? So if you need to use more of the Google cloud services, you can jump into that at any point that you want. You can, it doesn't have to be, oh, start off with the more sophisticated, roll your own stuff, or start out with the on-rails experience. You can kind of just mix and match things. That's wild. I mean, there's a lot going on here. And my understanding, Jaime, is that you know um, Firebase started as just a real-time database, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I guess hosting, right? But 
Um, and that's that's all I knew it as. Oh, was was all this stuff added in this announcement? I believe or, so. I, I, maybe some of these were were not quite new. Like for example, the the cloud messaging, Firebase cloud messaging, is more or less just a rebrand of Google cloud messaging. So if you've ever heard Android folks talk about a GCM token, it's roughly the equivalent of the push notification, the APNS token that you would have for iOS. Okay, I had never heard of that. But yeah, but the other pieces <laughs> like, and, and there's um, different plans for this. Just you know, similar to parses where some of these things are free forever. Some of them are, you know, hobbyist and, you know, indie developer level. And then like the enterprise call us and we'll tell you how much you pay sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> you get to like, you know, Instagram or, or Hipmunk kind of level, I would guess. But it, it's nice the way that it integrates everything. So, you know, if you have your analytics piece that is keeping track of who is it that's using your app and, and segmenting into different cohorts, like, uh, I think the example they gave was like Canadians 25 to 35 or people in Spain, you know, men, women, whatever the case may be, and linking that into your crash reporting as well. So you could say, oh, well, we're seeing all these weird crashes. What happened? Well, when I look at it, it's actually people in New Zealand. So what happened there? Oh, well, we had a configuration go out that's incorrect for that. Wow. So, so linking this, all that, yeah. instead of having like all these disparate things, right? You could piece it together with mixed panel. You could use urban airship. You could use many, many other things. Um, this is a nice integrated suite, which I think does come with a caveat that like, if you go this route and you use everything that it offers, like you're going whole hog, right? You're betting for sure. <laughs> you're betting yeah. the entire farm on this one thing sticking around. Yeah. Well, it's no different from other platforms like, like, parse and you know it reminds me too of amazon web services how it's just got a whole whack of different things that you could plug into for your applications right um and and in in the similar vein you kind of have to become an expert in the platform itself to really leverage its power um and i can imagine people consulting uh you know freelance uh contractors such as myself kind of going in to a client and saying yeah well i'm kind of like a a Firebase platform developer, you know? I'm an iOS guy, obviously, but uh, I'm, I'm big into Firebase. And I'm this is the sort of online tool set that I'm going to bring to bear when I build your application, you know? Similar to how, you know, there are Amazon developers out there, you know, in the web development realm who, who come in and they're like, yep, you're going to use AWS for everything. We're going to use S3 for storage. You're going to use... Uh, uh, EC2 for for hosting and and on and on and on, right? Uh, this this seems like the sort of thing that you've kind of got to build some expertise at because there's a lot of pieces. This article that you've brought in here from Scotch.io, uh, whew, there it's a big article and there are a lot of pieces. So like you could you could spend hours just just going through this article and getting your head all around it. Yeah, fascinating. It's, it's it's quite a bit of stuff, and um, this is Firebase is cross-platform, so it supports Android, of course, right? This is Google we're talking about. It supports mm-hmm. um, web integration, so you can have your web applications use Firebase. Supports iOS, which comes in Objective C and Swift flavors for their SDK. You know, Azure is a similar sort of thing to my mind. You know, it's not as featureful as this, but uh, in the same way, like it's a big platform. And you kind of have to, you have to pick one because, you know, there's just not enough hours in the day to become an expert in many of them, I don't think. Does that make any sense? Like, am I talking sense here? Yeah, that's what I thought. 
Okay, so the read, listeners are coming back going, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Probably around the time that Parse was um, announced that it was going away, we'd, we'd mentioned that like your mileage may vary and, and your risk factors may be different. So you're betting your entire enterprise on this may not be such a great idea because you're having somebody else's you know, incentives uh, who may not be aligned with your own being brought into this situation rather than controlling your own destiny. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, if you're like a student or a hobbyist or uh, maybe you want to bootstrap something, but you don't know if it's worth the time and effort to like roll your own database, roll your own API endpoints, I'd say have at it and try this out and see if it see if it works. And if you see traction, then start thinking about how you can reduce that risk. How I got uh, 10,000 five-star reviews in four weeks? What do you got there, Tim? This is our buddy. Uh, I spoke to the developer, Ryan McLeod of Blackbox, and uh, a couple of Twitter exchanges, and I saw this link here, uh, and him talking about um, how he managed to get 10,000 five-star reviews in four weeks, which is, I think, an interesting read for listeners of the show. Um, he talks about some of the challenges he had with with one of the levels in, in the game, well, without giving too much away, spoiler alert, Zoom ahead a minute or two. You love uh, giving away this game. No, I mean, think about one of one of the one of the levels. He asks you to to do, to uh, rate the app, and and when you rate it, he comes back and gives you a, a hint for free. And he got into trouble for, from Apple for doing that because they you know it's they don't want. There's a section three ten of the app review guidelines says you can't manipulate users to give you reviews, right? Um, and so. The, even just his asking them and then get, giving them a reward after they were done, uh, Apple kind of uh, frowned on that. So he had to change the app up a bit to do that, um, or to, to what he did in there. But it's interesting read on terms of what uh, what kind of things he discovered about you know getting as far ahead as he did. Besides the fact that he made a really compelling game, I think we've all talked about it, and those of us who have tried it. Um, I, I see Mark on Game Center has gone quite far with it. I'm not sure about Jaime, and I don't, I don't know if you were playing it Aaron at all. But um, and we had some fun with it on the way up to the cottage this weekend because my my grandson was was he was manning the the black box while I was driving. That's another hint for people. Um, and uh, yeah, it was. So uh, you was mentioned a, 140 miles in a in a tweet. I did. <laughs> was that enough? No. Okay. <laughs> Just curious. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's a picture on the this picture in this article of, of uh, a gentleman climbing one of the tours in Scotland to defeat one of the levels of uh, of the game. That's another another hint. So yeah. So anyway, it's yeah. fun time, fun times. Tell you what, Tim. I'll FedEx you my iPhone. You FedEx me your iPhone. We'll just run the app <laughs> once and then send them back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I have a feeling. I think I think one of them you have to actually be in a plane to get to to score the the final. Oh no, actually, no. I got that one. That's right. I had to climb to the Eagle's Nest in Bancroft, Ontario, on the Canadian Shield to uh, to defeat this game, one of the levels. So. Oh really? I don't know yeah. that level yet. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, so that, that's follow up. It's a good article. It's on medium.com about about his his uh, exploits uh, in getting. Uh, so you can also follow him on Twitter. He's Blackbox Puzzles um, on Twitter, and like that. That's my follow up. Are you playing the game at all, Jaime? You know, I, I haven't, and I think the last time I had mentioned that I'm, and I think even more so now that I'm seeing the, the spoilers from you on on Twitter that. I don't know if I'm ready to commit to this level. I mean, <laughs> this level is like, oh, I need to adopt a dog. I need to <laughs> be in an airplane. I need to shave a yak. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I need to rob a bank, you know, <laughs> find Bobby Fisher. I'm like, holy smokes. Yeah. 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 It, it's, well, it's not quite that hard, but, <laughs> 
But it's it's interesting. I will tell you this: it it, it may teach you more about your iPhone than you than you thought. You were ready to learn. Let's put it that way. So it's kind of cool. In fact, he was telling us. So so just as a bit of an interface, he was telling us. So you know, I don't know. If, those of you who have played the game, um, there's a there's an interface where you tap on uh, one of the squares to go into a level, and to get out of it, you tap on the screen, and it opens up this little hole. Well, he calls that a wormhole. And uh, there's a couple of things about that wormhole, and maybe some of our, our listeners or those driving in cars can try this out later when they park. Um, that so he called the I, I what I called his springboard. He calls it his grid. But if you tap on a level and then you you tap again and you and you drag your finger, this wormhole grows and takes you back to the home screen, which I think is a really cool interface trick. But he was telling me in, on Twitter that it's also 3D touch enabled. So those of you who have iPhone 6s or uh, higher, or t- give it a shot. Let us know what what you discover about that. It's kind of cool. That's one follow up. Do you have more? Uh, no, I think that's it for me. Yeah, I think we're all out of follow up. So, what should we talk about next? I think Mark has got one here about. Oh, I think we talked about this though. Mm-hmm. Um, with all the talk this uh, last week about Google's announcements about speech and. Uh, voice-activated assistants, uh, we've all been wondering, justly, I think, what Apple's going to do about Siri. And this article came out yesterday uh, from 9to5Mac talking about Apple's plans for a Siri SDK for WWDC, as well as its plans to build an, an Echo slash Google Home hardware competitor, which would mean an actual box that sits in your house and mm-hmm. listens for you to call out, hey, what's your name? This is exciting, and I, I really hope it's true. There was also another article published today. This is um, Brian Ruamel, who is writing about acquisitions that Apple has made in the last little while to pick up companies who are developing speech technology. And he points mm-hmm. to uh, Siri, of course, bought them, Emotient, Perceptio, Vocal IQ, and perhaps another other number of not yet disclosed acquisitions. And these are AI and voice related. So, uh, talking about some of the things that this guy's been following, and he's not terribly specific, I'm afraid, about what these companies have done, um, except to say that uh, he talks quite a bit about Vocal IQ, which is a company that Apple picked up, um, and uh, some of the features that they have. He lists them here. Noise robustness uh, to ensure all input is interpreted in the context of the dialogue, improving performance. Uh, the ability to rapidly prototype, which suggests an SDK capability. Mm-hmm. Um, an extensible platform architecture, uh, so you can plug new things into it. Um, and then learning through interaction. So the more it, um, the more it, it gets used, the more it learns. And it's like actually like breakthrough feature in that way. So, uh, it, it all comes together to, to suggest that, you know, actually you're not seeing a lot of progress here, but, uh, guess what? Apple really is hard at work on this and they've got a lot of, uh, interesting technology that is just now coming in house. So, uh, combine that with what we're seeing from the rumor mill about, uh, an announcement at WWDC in three weeks and maybe we've got something going on here. Little, little smoke. There must be fire. Yeah, it, it. It certainly seems like there there could be something here. Um, I kind of wonder how these things will shake out. So I, I happen to own um, an Amazon Echo Dot. Um, it's working out pretty great for what uh, it does. We knew it. Uh, <laughs> apparently, it's like U.S. only, which kind of doesn't surprise me because Amazon is very no. U.S. centric. What's they your Echo, what's your Echo Dot's name? 
I'm not going to say you guys keep trying to troll all the virtual assistants. <laughs> um, hey, Juanita, shut off his Mac. <laughs> Juanita. Um, it, and, and I probably, I mean, unless it's unreasonably priced, I probably will buy, um, you know, the Siri home or whatever the equivalent is, you know, if it's, you know, 200 or less, I would think. And I might even buy the uh, Google Home as well and just have all three assistants there and sort of compare and contrast how they, they deal with things. Yeah. I'm going to go on a limb and say it's CarPlay too, though, wouldn't you think? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, think about it. Like, like I think we... It, so Greg said last week he never uses Siri, and, and I very rarely use it. But I can tell you that when I was... Um, when I play hockey on Sunday mornings, you know, I can't talk, I can't use my phone in, at the same time. So I sometimes use my watch or my iPhone to ask Siri for things while I'm driving, right? So Sure, uh, yeah. Which is the poor man's version of CarPlay, right? But... Uh, I mean, isn't that, isn't that what CarPlay is? It basically it ties into your phone, and then you can you can do the Google thing and whatever while you're driving. Uh, no, I mean CarPlay is a distinct car formatted UI uh, mm-hmm. for your phone. So you plug your phone into it, yes. Uh, and any apps that you have on your phone that support CarPlay uh, become available on the CarPlay display. Right. Yes, Siri is among them. Um, right, but. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I still use Siri. Um, I, I'm disappointed by her frequently but i still use it like an idiot yeah yeah (laughs) you know uh but it's clear to anybody who does use siri you know the the few of us who are left that it is is wanting uh it has not seen much improvement in the last four years it was the first on the scene but now it has been eclipsed by all the other services and i think it's time now and i think apple recognizes it that it needs to step up its game if it wants to even remain here so uh these these are all good signs Okay, cool. Right. Okay. And I think there'll be some interesting challenges here because I, when I compare and contrast what Siri on the phone does uh, versus what the Echo does, if I looked at a, at a checkbox right out of, you know, right out of the, the box, um, Siri actually does more out of the box than the Echo does. And I think a lot of the enthusiasm that's that's come out is related to a, a few things. One is the fact that uh, Siri is terrible at at context right so google showed us its assistant piece that's all about context right like i want to see a movie oh here's movies uh but we're bringing the kids okay well here's the kid-friendly ones uh okay we want to see that one and it buys the tickets right siri doesn't really do that very well um the apple tv one is a little closer and that it's kind of like semi-contextual but more like it's adding facets to your search right like show me funny movies uh, now only ones with like Sean Connery, you know, that sort of thing. It's not exactly Brackets. the same as like switching context um, to be sensitive to like, clearly you mean you want to buy this thing or clearly you want to see a different set of things. And, mm. I, and I think it's even kind of moved backwards in some respects where um, within the first year or two of, of Siri being around, uh, I could tell it, you know, r- remind me to pick up milk. And I say, okay, great. When would you like to be reminded? And I'll say, oh, um, tomorrow at 5 p.m. It doesn't do that now. Now I have to train myself to say, you know, Siri, remind me to pick up milk tomorrow at 5 p.m. Otherwise, it just sort of like goes off and chooses a random arbitrary time to, to remind <laughs> me. It's like 9 a.m. or 9 p.m. or something. It's, it's bonkers. I don't, I don't, oh I don't get goodness. that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, find, I find editing mis-dictated... Mis- uh, um uh, events or text messages are sometimes frustrating, right? So I know there's a way to correct the correct Siri, but it's it's awkward, right? I know what you mean. 
Yeah, and uh, the the echo by comparison is it, it can have context programmed into a very limited context. You're, you're talking more like um, decision tree points, right? Like you can say, you know, uh, ask kayak where can I go for five hundred dollars, and it'll say, oh, what airport are you flying out of? Okay, um, what? Uh, what's what's the other one is you know which uh which days do you want to leave which days do you want to return right so there is some context in there but it's very sort of rudimentary decision tree like that you might get from calling a call center an automated call center mm-hmm. um i think another thing that, that that people are really excited about is the fact that um the the feel of it is much different because it it readily tells you like i don't know what you're asking Right, where Siri sort of defaults to, I didn't understand what you told me, so I'm just going to do a Google search with this like random text that's all right, variable yeah. that I figured out. It's like, right, like that, yeah. that's not great. It's not giving me, and I actually have to look at it to see, like, oh, let me take my eyes away from whatever I was doing and look and see, oh, that's why it didn't respond. It did a Google search or a Bing search, whatever the equivalent is. Like that, that's not right. helpful. Just, just let me know if you can't fulfill the request. Um. Of course, uh, by contrast, the um, the Echo is much more open because it has an API. You can write skills to it. There's you know, yeah. only a handful of those right now that are any good. Very similar apps, but um, the ones that are there are actually you know kind of neat and fun. And, and people any, like anybody can go and, and add one. That's, so that's great. And, and I'm hoping to see that the the Siri API would would be open and exist. A concern I have, sort of going longer term for these. You know, different companies is like if you're a developer what would you start developing for is kind of considering like where would things fall into play so i think in terms of pure technology like you should just assume it's it's more or less the same right you can reverse engineer what anybody else is doing and a lot of this stuff is open source so i think the the pure you know voice pieces and and, and even some of the machine learning parts aren't all that interesting to me it's more like what is the data set and i think that that Amazon is probably the weakest in this respect, right? Because all they really have data set wise is here's the product information related to Amazon, mm-hmm. right? They, they know what you bought from them and maybe uh, some limited integrations that you know, third-party developers have added, but they're, they're pretty weak. Um, Google, by contrast, is by far the best one. Like they know everything about you. Like just about everybody uses at least one Google product somewhere. Um, and the more you use them, the more that they know about you and their corporate culture is such that they like ingesting all this data. So I haven't really figured out where Apple would fall in this scheme where they sort of actively dislike hanging onto your data, mm-hmm. right? And they don't know as much about you as Google does. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious as to how this will play out. Have you guys heard of Jibo? The Jibo robot? J-I-B-O. No. So it, it came out a couple of years ago, and it's it's sort of I think it was one of these it's similar sort of a uh, device where it sits in your kitchen or whatever, and I believe it does facial recognition, but and it you know greets you when you come into the room, and it and it kind of does the same sort of things, um, searching for things on the web and stuff like that, and it, I believe there's an SDK for it as well. But uh, it was mentioned at, at NS North by one of the speakers there um, about social the social implications of programming and stuff like that. So. more than just code listeners are you ready for indie dev stock 
this September 16th and 17th in Nashville, Tennessee, at the Gaylord Opryland Resort and Convention Center, some of the brightest minds will be attending Indie DevStock. Join us for two days and learn from the industry's best designers, developers, and entrepreneurs. Professionals like Greg Heo, Ellen Shapiro, Janie Clayton, Simon Allardyce, and many more. Our speakers will share their stories, experiences, and insights with you. They'll discuss the challenges indies face and, more importantly, how to overcome them. But you don't have to be an indie to attend. Indie Dev Stock is made for everyone, whether you're just starting out or have been an indie for years. Indie Dev Stock is about making connections and sharing new ideas. While you're there, explore Nashville and Music City, the place where music is inspired, written, recorded, and performed. For more details and to register for Indie Dev Stock, visit IndieDevStock.com. We hope to see you there. All right. Well, so a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned I was at NS North and in a talk by like Swift Advanced or Intermediate Swift training session with Daniel Steinberg, and he kept dropping sort of little explanations throughout the whole talk about um, technologies that Apple introduces well in advance of when we actually see products that kind of make these things make sense. One instance was, you know, he mentioned he talked about auto layout and how auto layout led to adaptive layout and size classes. And, you know, at first we were scratching our heads going, what is this going to be useful for? And then, you know, larger phones come out and all of a sudden it starts to make sense. And ARC was, was something that made mem- memory management easier for all of us, but it also led the way to Swift using uh, memory management, uh, using ARC as well. And then app thinning, you know, leading towards Apple TV and Apple Watch, uh, you know, making smaller smaller binary sets for for smaller devices. So that said, uh, with WWC coming up in a couple of weeks, what do you guys think? Let's go around the table and sort of see, you know, what you think you we might see at WWDC based on what we've seen Apple been doing over the last couple of years in various frameworks and stuff like that that they've been putting together, or even rumors that you've heard. But one of them is the Siri SDK, obviously. But so, what do you what do you guys think? Yeah, now I feel the pressure of like, okay, what has Apple been piecing together that I can say, okay, <laughs> let me use my Sherlock Holmes skills to say, aha, clearly they're doing X. Tim, why don't, yeah. why don't so you what, get us started? So, well, us what I you mean, think. <laughs> um, well, I mean, one of the things I just said was, was what about CarPlay and Siri SDK kind of coming together and, and, um, maybe Apple's going to take that to the next level because that's what CarPlay is one of those, those, um, offerings that apple's brought out for obvious reasons without much you know they've they've put a lamborghini on the floor of wwdc but and let developers sit in the driver's seat but beyond that whatever whatever's really become of it you know i've seen icons for it in in um that in steering wheels and stuff like that but uh never actually seen it do anything beyond that right um, I saw a tweet the other day about somebody mentioned that perhaps this uh, talk of Siri means that we'll be able to talk to our Apple TV finally, you know, other than what we do now with, you know, saying, show me movies by Ryan Reynolds or somebody like that. Right. So what about if uh, Apple Pay and Siri went together and you could be sitting there in front of your television, scrolling through uh, the iTunes store and you could say, buy it. And uh, and there'd be some way to identify that you're the person who's saying it, and maybe they're going to update the remote for the Apple TV with a Touch ID. I'm just guessing, um, or maybe with your iPad, you can. Can you say can you say buy it on iTunes now? No, no. So maybe that maybe something that they they be thinking about doing. So 
Well, they a, surprise us every year, really, right? Yeah, a, a uh, purchasing system or whatever you would call it through the Apple TV would actually be really interesting. Right now, I don't uh, certainly Apple Pay doesn't work on on the Apple TV yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as far as I know, no third party libraries like PayPal or Stripe work on Apple TV. So that would be pretty cool. I mean, you could it, it just imagine you know the the experience that you have now on a, a shopping app. On, on the iPhone as, as tricky as that is because of the size and even the iPad is, is is better but still not necessarily great for shopping but mm-hmm. TV is a perfect medium for that so if you right. yeah, exactly, be buying yeah. stuff on the TV that would that would be great so I'd like to see, yes I would like to see Apple have some kind <laughs> of system to do purchases or, or monetary transactions through Apple TV yeah. I gotta tell you like that that stuff while possible and interesting is not near the top of my list for what I'm hoping for from WWDC. Okay. Um, I I think of things that we've probably already talked about on the show, um, like the iPad OS, such right. as it is. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, like that, that to me is top of list. If I want to see a sign that Apple is looking to actively develop the iPad as a replacement for the Mac, mm-hmm. you know, coming down the road. And number one sign, we said it before, Xcode for iPad needs to happen for, for me to believe that that's real rather than, you know... Um, iterative new features for ipad as um even though they've been doing that i mean we've seen split screen and uh, picture in picture uh, for ipad last year that was a huge advance um but uh, we need to see more and um you know the sooner the better and i i, I just can't imagine uh not having the ipad as a serious platform without being able to build software for it on the device or, or, or even having a pro ios which we talked about yeah before. exactly like now they've we've got, got these two pro devices pro and, devices and no pro os yeah lots of lots of empty space exactly yeah it really does make you wonder like the pro moniker being used for these ipads now yeah, yeah. Uh, and the apparent retirement of the air moniker hmm. across the line too right like the macbook air um, has not been updated meaningfully in a long time um, and the MacBook has seemingly replaced its original place in sort of the thin and light, you know, super cool computer category, mm-hmm. where if, if Air is gone and it's going to be Pro and then basically iPad, say, um, where's the OS to support it? And that's something that I'm really looking forward to from WWDC. Ultimately, um, I think there there will eventually be some kind of merger between Mac and iOS, such that you know one replaces the other, <laughs> and we know which one that would be. Mm-hmm. Um, this this WWDC is going to be a very important uh, place for us to see where that evolution is heading. So I don't really look at any particular frameworks. You know, like I feel like Apple's laid so much groundwork in the last few years, and um, you know, with with the um, the resizable apps. Uh, on iPad, I think that was sort of the 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 pinnacle, really, of where auto layout, for example, was going. You know, what classes, else is yeah, yeah, si- yeah, yeah, right. Um, so where you know we're done that now. What's next, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and we but we saw that coming. You know, like if you listen to the show like a year ago from a year ago, we knew that you know this was coming. The multi multi sized apps. I can't even remember what they called multitasking. Multitasking, yeah, multitasking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we could see it coming a mile away. Right, um, but we don't have a similar view in light of what the the frameworks are looking like right now, except to say perhaps um, you know one of the big things that we've been hearing about what with Swift uh, approaching its three release uh, probably within a few weeks with WWDC um, 
you know, is it possible that we're going to start to see some framework replacements happening? Uh, mm-hmm. Perhaps a merger between AppKit and UIKit, uh, something that's truly swifty. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I'm sure that you've been hearing all of the talk, the chatter this week about the static versus dynamic natures of Swift and Objective C, mm-hmm. um, and what we're missing. And you know, great columnists from um, from Brent Simmons and others who are responding and echoing all around the web this past week, talking about how Swift is. Uh, leaving behind a lot of its uh, dynamic, uh, the, the dynamic advantages that we have with Objective C, mm. and still relying on because we're you know Swift is built on top of the Objective C runtime, um, you know so people who are who are using Swift and saying well we don't really need you know dynamism in our language well <laughs> guess wow. what you totally totally do um, and uh, Apple needs to have an answer for um, for how applications are going to be wired together really, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a, a post-Objective-C world. Um, so we need to look for answers to that question as well at WWDC, because while the development of Swift is out in the open, it's an open source project and uh, very public and very visible, the frameworks on which we build our apps are still, of course, quite private. Um, and yet there is probably some very interesting development going on there, I think. I would really love to see some signs of that from WWDC. What do you think, Javi? Okay, so I've put together one, two, three, four, five different things that lead to uh, one hypothesis. Okay, so if you take peak and pop, kind of like, you know, for the 3D touch aspect, being able to view things, you take uh, the app links, um, dynamic frameworks, app thinning, and I'm even going to toss in uh, app transport security on there. Maybe Apple could have its equivalent of Android instant apps, but for iOS, right? You would piece and extension the, architecture. Yeah, you piece everything together. Where you know maybe I don't really need an entire app if I've got a dynamic framework that can that can serve up some modularized component of my app, like you know the part that lets me browse and buy stuff from my service. App thinning to make sure that it streams as you know the resources as small as possible. Uh, ATS, of course, to make sure that, hey, you know, nobody's letting my information go willy-nilly out into the ether with open HTTP. Um, And the app link and peak and pop part being like, hey, um, we know that, you know, mystore.com, if I sort of peek into that one, I see a, oh, here's a preview of what this modular component would be, you know, some like, you know, mini storefront sort of thing that you're viewing from an email, let's say. And like, yeah, I actually want to do you know, I want to go buy that mug or that purse or whatever. And you can pop into it and it brings up that full modularized component. You go through, uh, if signup is required in any way, they probably tie it into your um, iCloud account. So you can just sign in with that and create an account. Um, but at the very least, use Apple Pay to pay and, and get all your information taken care of and make sure that that package shows up at your door. Yeah, I can see all those pieces in place. Totally. Mark, you got any pie in the sky ideas? No. <laughs> <laughs> so you just sit back and wait for the, uh, the the keynote to roll over you, washing away your sins. Oh, we'll see what they have to offer. I, I don't. I don't know. I, I took a look, Mark. If you wanted to do the same, I just took a look at what's new in iOS for iOS eight and iOS nine. Mm-hmm. And yeah. as I'm live putting together another one, I'm like, okay, you have metal, you oh, have yeah. gameplay kit. And you have uh, 
additions to scene kit, the 3D framework, I'm like, oh, there you go. Boom. iOS VR. Yeah. Yeah. iOS VR. Yeah. Or even, yeah. Or even OS 10 VR. Hmm. Sure. Less likely. <laughs> I think Apple's going to ship like a headset that uh, accepts like a slot for an iPhone put it in front of your eyes. Isn't that what everybody's cardboard? doing? Like they, like Google Cardboard, but there are others too, where you've, you've got this thing that you wear on your face and you just slide the phone in. Yeah, the Oculus and stuff like that, yeah. Well, I thought the Oculus was like a dedicated display, not you don't put your phone. And it runs from a high-end graphic. Yeah, well, that's Windows what I PC. meant. So like like in that case there, you have to plug it into some sort of PC or something like that, right? And and uh, why? how come why Apple could use that with a USB-C port, right? Couldn't they, you know? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not holding my breath on that one, though. I think VR is a little early yet for Apple to come up with a compelling experience that would uh, justify that kind of technology. You know, I'm reading um, <laughs> a sidebar. Can we have a sidebar? Sure. All right. Uh, I asked last week for book recommendations, and a friend of the show, Justin Stanley, recommended Ready Player One. Right. Uh, for me to read and um i've been really enjoying it it's a it's a book about uh, a future where uh the the world is desperately poor and actually coming apart with uh, climate change etc and uh, most people live in this virtual reality environment called the oasis and uh everybody kind of sits around and has this vr headset and and mm. gloves on and that's how they they move around in the world and it's apparently quite photorealistic um, there's a movie being made of this movie actually which um could be very interesting um but uh it uses this technology suffice to say the underlying technology is not ready uh for an oasis like uh breakthrough as it were um but you know what is you know <laughs> i just don't see uh how how that's going to play out anytime soon but it'll probably, like, I can imagine Apple coming in once the technology is much more proven. Um, but right now, it just seems like a bunch of interesting demos that are a long way from being real. I'm, I'm seeing these two articles that you put in here, Tim, about 5G technology, and I don't know anything about that. Can you... Uh... Yeah, these these came out, um, of course, Carol, like I said, she reads the Toronto Star and she shoves things in front of me when, when I'm not looking. Um, and that's how these appended, ended up on my desk. And they're actually uh, stories that uh, the Star reprinted uh, one uh, uh, recently and one a little bit older. But uh, they're about the next sort of wave in um, technology or in communication technology in 5G networks. And a lot of companies are getting uh, getting invested into them. And, and some of the interesting points about it is it's going to be you know, way faster, but way more expensive than what we're paying for now. Um, but thanks, but, but it, no thanks. But it all has to do exactly. But it all has to do. Like they're saying seven times more expensive than what it is today, right? What? Yeah, and I think that's um, uh, has to do with the amount of equipment they have to put in. But it's because there's so much uh, latency is one of the biggest problems with with the state of 4G right now, right? Um, I guess the millennials aren't getting their movies as quick as they could, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. instant gratification doesn't come come quickly enough but um yeah so that's one thing and then of course the canadian centered side of that story was uh the second article that i put there which talks about what rogers and bell are doing about um getting involved in um installing networks and and putting in this kind of stuff as well so it's sort of it's on on the horizon i guess you know we don't know when it's going to see the light of day but uh 5g is on its way I wonder how, how long have we had 
4G um, or LTE, you know, that. It's only been a couple of years. Yeah, it's yeah. two or three years. Yeah, Two or three years, right? And yeah. then 3G before that was probably another two to three years. I'm thinking the iPhone 5 was the first LTE device. Maybe I've, maybe the yes. iPad 3? Yeah, it, it, uh, I don't know on the iPads, but uh, the iPhone 5 was in fact LTE because I upgraded out of band from a 4S to an iPhone 5 specifically for the that. LTE yeah. speeds. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I think the question of like, what is four? You know, how long have we had four G? I would say, well, what are you calling four G exactly? Because I don't know how it's like in Canada, but in the United States, there are folks who are. I'm not going to call them liars, but I'm going to say they're stretching the truth, <laughs> uh, yeah. allegedly stretching the truth, just to cover myself. Um, with regards to, there is one provider that had real four G, and then there were a couple other ones who were like, yeah, it's faster than three G. We're going to call it four G. Yeah, yeah, right. I remember that. Yeah, mm. and um, yeah, but because the, there is a a faster uh, version of three G uh, that is available, and I think a lot of or some vendors label that four G in Canada. It's called LTE, and it actually says LTE in the bar when you have it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I think they skipped over that whole four G moniker. Uh, but you know, we know what it means. Uh, so I guess you know it, this article here from the Star says that we're still a few years away, and uh, I don't know. We'll see what the pricing looks like. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, AT and T and Verizon are are doing testing right now. And saw one article about Austin, Texas. Now, AT and T is is rolling out five G in, in in a test environment, so it may not be that right. far away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Drag a picture it right hasn't here. been standardized yet, is what they're saying here too. So I think uh, you know, like vendors can come out with uh, implementations. Uh, before it's been officially standardized. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't think it's going to, you know, get out there really unless it does get standardized. Yeah, I'm just trying to put a picture here in the message. Ugh. Computers, how do they even work? I know, eh? I know, eh? There we go. Okay. Here, you're there. typing. I can see that now. Okay, there you go. Okay, so, so there was a sidebar article that I couldn't, I didn't have a link for, but it was something that I guess I think the star might have put together just to talk about the history of the Gs. So 1980 was 1G, 1992 was 2G. Oh, ah, this is great. Yes. Yeah, so and 2G included the original iPhone, 2001 3G, uh, and then, um, and it talks about where they rolled out first, you know, like Japan for 3G, and then 4G, the ultra broadband. Gigabit, the- gigabit speed theoretically, you know, 10 times faster than 3G, suitable suitable for home internet access. So, or suitable to, I guess, comparable to. So each each G appears to be a, a 10x improvement over its predecessor. I suppose, yeah. 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 So I don't know. I, you know, I think if they, if they do come up with 5G, they're going to need a good, a pretty good story to explain uh, an apparent price boost, right? But then if you imagine, like, you know, uh, like today... 3G access is is very inexpensive, right? Mm-hmm. Like there, I've heard of. Uh, gosh, I can't. I don't have specifics in mind, but uh, you know, some vendors give it away, and hmm. uh, you know, like if uh, if you pay a certain amount, you get 4G, but up to a certain limit, and then they just bump you down to 3G, where there's just no congestion. Uh, in a similar way, 4G may end up becoming sort of the default free access. Well, of course it will, right? 5G will come. It's not a matter of if. It's it's a matter yeah. of when it will come, and the price will come go. down, and uh, uh, and then there'll be a 6G. Right? It's it's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. Right, yeah. yeah. With regard to the, the 5G, I, I definitely do think that uh, bandwidth, of course, because we're eventually going to start 
pulling down 4K content. So that that makes sense of like just having enough throughput to do that. Um, mm-hmm. If they can enhance or reduce latency, that would be huge, huge, huge for streaming and making sure that quality of service for voice calls, uh, you know, video streaming, you know, like FaceTime or let's say like Allo, like their equivalent of, uh, or sorry, uh, Duo, Google's app equivalent of FaceTime. You know, that sort of stuff is going to be much more important, right? Uh, I, I do wonder if uh, just like all computing resources, if uh, we developers would just end up filling the bucket, right? Like, uh, you know, how many people do you know who are really, really thinking about exactly how many bits they're putting over the wire right now? Probably not right. Too many, nobody, right? Only nobody. is like, oh, run it through instruments. It's slow. Oh, okay. There's too many bits here. Let me shave something out of my, my data structure. I don't know. I, I think we need to be conscious of that, right? Like uh, uh, computers get faster and faster, but the software gets slower and slower by comparison. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, just imagine doing something like JSON 20 years ago, right? It's so verbose. Well, maybe, maybe more than 25 years ago. It's it's so verbose that you, there's just, you would never even have considered back then of sending something that was essentially text uh, over a, you know, 28k modem or something like that or a 14.4k modem back in the day those are the days right. yeah all right so let's go around the table like we usually do and see if anybody has any picks aaron do you have a pick i do not have one this week well then why are we doing picks okay um because jaime's got like 30 of them yeah does mark have a pick i do not have a pick okay all right now that we've cleared the room for you and me jaime <laughs> <laughs> do you have any picks, Jaime? I do. I have two picks. So this is pick zero 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 one. That's Greg, an honor take of Greg, that, Greg because Greg yeah. went with a zero based. I went with um, twos based. Um, so binary based. So yeah. uh, this first one is on Xcode. Sir, uh, the basic idea is uh, an article here showing the different things that you can use for search. And some of these I didn't actually know because they're sort of non intuitive. Um, like the first thing is patterns. So if you wanted to search for things that are kind of hard to write, like a little regular expression for like uh, IP address, URL, uh, digits, hexadecimal digits, that sort of thing, you could just go and click on the little um, find icon in mm-hmm. in search, right? And you just kind of pull the little drop down thing. That's the, the thing that's a little non-obvious. There's a little arrow there you can pull down. And when you search for that, it, it sort of puts in like, you know, quotes, a little like bubble placeholder, like URL in the example they show. And then you can find like, you know, all your API endpoints or, or all the um, web addresses that you're opening in a, a Safari view controller or something. So that was uh, pretty cool. Um, definitions I knew about where you can sort of click on the, um, like the little chevrons, they kind of look like breadcrumbs in the UI. Again, the same uh, find mechanism in Xcode where you search for, in this example, they should search for the word shared. And you might have shared all sorts of stuff, right? You might have like right, yeah. uh, shared state, all these other bits, this, that, and the other, some sort of view controller sort of thing. And what you're actually looking for is where the heck is this thing defined? Like, I know there's a couple of these that have a similar name, and I want to find where they're at. Um, right. Search scopes, I think, is one that most people know about, but if they don't, um, it's actually pretty handy. So if you're using um, a workspace, right, where you have, um, l- let's say, like the most popular one that you're going to have a workspace for is probably because you have something like CocoaPods installed, right? right? And that, that requires the workspace. But if you've ever searched for, 
you know, myobject.foo, and holy smokes, it shows up a bazillion times in some CocoaPod that you're using. Like, you'll go nuts, right? But you can set the workspace as a, you know, don't search the entire workspace, search for the scope of just, you know, my project. Or if you have a multi-project setup, you can say, oh, just this project. Don't search for the URLs in every little thing that, that's available to uh, Xcode right now. Um, call hierarchy, uh, of course. So, like, you, I kind of wish this was a little easier to get to. I don't know if there's a shortcut key. But, like, you know, if you're looking at, uh, at some line of code, you can go and click on the... What does it look like? I'd have to fire up Xcode. It, it kind of looks like a little window pane icon in the editor. And you can drag and say, like, who is this included by? Who includes this? Uh, or, sorry, what does this include? Who is this included by? And you can also choose the callers fact. And it's kind of a pain in the neck if you have multiple callers to sort of like jump back and forth between them. Uh, but in this case, you can choose find for call hierarchy, and then this will show like how all of that works, right? Like how all those places that those are, are called from. So that's kind of nice. Uh, it's a good article to take a look at. I highly recommend if, yeah, it's uh, super cool. if you didn't know about these, you know about them now. And uh, if, <laughs> if you forgot how to do these, because Xcode like is sometimes a little mysterious and sometimes moves things between major versions, now you know how to find them. Yeah, this is awfully cool. This is uh, really going to be really handy to use, especially in big uh, legacy apps like I may or may not be working in. And so um, what is your second pick in... I, I, I use that term loosely since we're talking in binary. What's right. your tenth pick? My, my, my next pick is 0000010. 000 000 um, that is Blockhead. So I, I have to say that I caveat this one that I haven't actually tried this myself. Um, however... Okay. However, uh, what Blockhead is, is um, the little connectors. You know, so if you have your power supply for your Mac and it's the little brick and you get the little connector piece that can be, you know, removed and mm -hmm. you replace it with the long, you know, cable that comes with the, the MacBook Pro, for example. Um, but if you're like me, you run into this situation of like, holy smokes, there's like no space for either one of these things. I can't have the big, you know, brick sticking, you know, completely parallel out of uh, or perpendicular from the wall so sticking out from it nor do i even have enough space behind this stupid couch to put the um you know the, the, even the extension cable piece like even it's like give on the wire isn't enough to shove it behind there without me feeling like i'm gonna like cause a fire um so in the meanwhile so what i've usually done is i've gotten like you know the, those flathead against the wall like extension cable sorts of things and, and those work out what these guys have at Blockhead is an actual little connector piece that is situated, you know, sideways. So you can lay the brick on its uh, flatter edge instead of its more protruding edge. So I think that's pretty cool. Apparently, it's what, 1995 and uh, US, and is expected to ship in June 17th. So I haven't tried it. Nobody else has tried it apparently, uh, but it looks really mm -hmm. cool. I'm like, holy smokes! Why doesn't Apple like supply this? It's actually those, kind of cool. I've run into times where the the lever arm of the of the big brick sticking out perpendicular to the wall is enough to just pull it out of the socket, right? right. Because it's only attached in that one little corner, and this would help that just by by changing the angle. Now it's the now the now the brick is per, is parallel to the wall instead of perpendicular to the wall. Yeah, so it sticks out. Yeah, in the little thing. chart here on the website where it sticks out half or one point two inches with the blockhead, as opposed to three point eight inches with it with right. a sixty watt plug, uh, plugged in 
straight ways. But I have to say, for the left-handed f- uh, folks in the crowd, this only co- seems to come in a right-handed model. So you have to, <laughs> you have to re- rearrange your furniture appropriately. <laughs> so all the lefties in the world, you know, are yelling at their phones right now. But yeah, this is pretty cool. And, but but that said, I also have a whole drawer full of these little white adapter things all over the place. So now I'm going to have blue ones. At least you can tell them apart. It's mm-hmm. true. It's true. No, this is super handy. I don't know why somebody didn't think of this before, or even or even one that could rotate. You know, there's a similar thing on on Facebook right now. They've seen some ads for uh, it's a USB charger that's like a, a fits a faceplate that fits right over top of your existing plug and gives you access to a couple of USB ports, and then but then you still have access to the actual plug interface itself. Right, so, I've seen that one. That's red, is it not? Uh, no, this is a different one. It's, it, oh. it looks it looks like the faceplate of a of a of a standard plug, oh. and you can actually stack them. I think they're called stackables or something like that. Um, I'll find a link and put them in the show. Hmm. But uh, yeah, there yeah, you go. I am thinking of something different. There's something that that also works with the, like similar to what Blockhead looks like. You know, it, it's it snaps into that uh, that plug, but yeah. it also offers some USB. Yeah, yeah, I have that I have that one as well. It's uh, um, yeah, I have one of those in my bag. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I'll put a link but, to that one too cool because yeah. I, yeah, I can't it, remember it <laughs> yeah it's got it's it, it fits into like it fits it replaces that sort of plug and that that kind of interface probably has a name but we're screwing up but it has a usb port so you can have your you can charge your power book and you can charge a usb device out, out of the same outlet at the same time so that's kind of handy um and then it just works as a power or ipad charger anyway like a what a 10 watt or whatever they are um Okay, so my pick, I reached out to the developer. I haven't heard back from him today, but I saw his tweet, and I, and I downloaded the app. It's a game. It's called uh, Mechorama, and I think uh, his name is Martin uh, Mag- Magni. Magni. Uh, he's from Sweden, I think he said. So he uh, posted that he reached a million downloads in a week, and I was trying to find out from him, and I'll, I'll follow up with this on the show next week, about um, how he... Um, managed to to get that i want to i was curious i've asked him a few questions about how he decided he's an indie developer like the rest of us but this this game is cool it's kind of a it's a second generation of a game that he made before um and this one is uh one of one of the apps he made before it's called block world and go back to and the other the previous app was a 2d scroller side scroller called odd bot out where you have these little puzzles and you figure your way out but mechorama takes it to the next level and and it competes with a similar style as uh, the Monument Valley games, where you start out with these little puzzles and you have to you know navigate this little robot around this obstacle course to get him from one level to the next. Um, what's interesting, though, from our perspective, is his I in at purchase um, model is pay what you want, right? So he's got three uh, levels of um uh, in in at purchase and i'm seeing them in canadian dollars translated on the itunes store so you, you americans can tell me is it like 99 cents 199 and 299 so 99 cents 199 399 799 1599 and the final one at 3199 yeah so in keeping with what we were talking about before uh, i'm kind of curious what you guys think about that payment model but here is somebody saying okay well this app is worth some it has value, right? Um, but please give me what you want, right? And I'm curious to find out how successful he's been with that. But I mean, you would think that by the numbers, if he's had a million downloads, he's probably seen some uh, remuneration from that as well, right? Remuneration. Thank you. So, any like, so what do you think about that um, model? 
I would be shocked. Interesting idea. If he was making money. <laughs> well, he'll make some. I mean, it's with a, with a million downloads. I don't know. I would estimate that he's probably getting five or ten thousand people actually giving him something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's just a pure guess out of nowhere. Now, is that enough to pay for the development costs? I don't know. Yeah. So this is kind of interesting. So, so a couple things come to mind um, related. So I believe this is the one that one of the Apple executives, and I can't remember which one it is, tweeted about, and everybody jumped on top of him. Oh, like, really? oh my God, this is like a ripoff of Monument Valley, and how essentially, how dare you like promote this sort of thing? Like, you've you've played this, and you've played Monument Valley. Can you tell us if that's like accurate? I mean, like, you know, not every game that you know you run around and jump is Mario, even though there's there's certainly some games that that don't uh, innovate much on top of the the classic two D Mario experience. But yeah, you know, Rayman or Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, these sorts of things are very different from Mario, even though if you looked at them, like, you know, through a very blurry lens and say, ah, whatever, it's the same thing. It, yes. it, how, how does this yeah. one differ from Monument Valley? Well, so, uh, you know, from from uh, looking at it as a developer, it's a very similar kind of mechanism. It seems to be um, uh, the same sort of thing. But, I mean, what's to stop anybody from making a 3D-based uh, app with, with a similar kind of idea here he's using he's using swipe to spin the model around to go from one side of the puzzle to the other that seems to be that's a, something that they did in monument valley but he doesn't do the uh sort of optical illusion tricks that monument valley does which is one of the charms about that game um but and i've only played like two or three levels of it myself but uh you know I, again it's like you know okay so we have one tv show called happy days means you can never do a show that's like that you know Right, um, and and I think I heard something critical there because I I did notice as I'm looking at the uh, the App Store piece that the the art style is very different. It doesn't really look like Monument Valley. No, right, no. it's not aping that style. And from what I heard, it doesn't. Even though it is a 3D move things around, move this little guy from one place to another, it's yeah. really not the optical illusion, you know, Escher painting kind of uh, gameplay. So it actually sounds right. radically different just from those two bits that are different. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's 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 clearly made in either Unity or Scene Kit. That's that's obvious. But um, yeah, and I see an article here from Cult of the Mac saying that uh, gorgeous puzzle Macarama uh, Macarama hopes to be 2016's Monument Valley, and and maybe it will be right because, but it, but it's not got that same sort of musical mystique and stuff like that. Monument Monument Valley has Monument Valley has that little character and all that kind of stuff. Um, I forgot her name, Ada. I think her name is. But yeah, no, it's it's. I think it's it's a worthwhile attempt. It's it's a very good looking app. I mean, it's fine if he was um, um, inspired by Monument Valley to do this. But if you look at Oddbot Out, as I said before, it's a two D scroller. The character is very similar to the 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 robot in that game, where he's just you know now it's in three D as opposed to two D. But a previous game that he did and uh, is sort of, um, and I think my, my grandsons play it called Blocks World, which is very similar to Minecraft, where you've got this sort of world where you put things together in blocks. So what are we going to say? That's a ripoff of uh, Minecraft. It's similar in a sense to um, a couple of, couple of apps on, that I've seen on PlayStation where, you know, the kids can actually put together levels and create, you know, characters. I mean, even Angry, or angry Pigs. <laughs> The Angry Birds has that pig pig game where the pigs can make these little contraptions and stuff like that, and the, the kids love playing with those kind of things. So, 
I don't think it's uh, necessarily a ripoff that somebody takes pays an homage to another another app, if you want to call it that, right? They're inspired by it. Yeah, and they you extended know? it too because I see here that you can uh, you can make your own levels. Yeah, and apparently there's some sort of collectible QR code mechanism by which you can achieve uh, or, or grab more levels. Right. Right. Yeah. So that that's quite a bit different and. Style-wise, actually, look. Now that you said the Minecraft thing, it actually looks like either an up-res version of Minecraft, of Minecraft. art style yep. or a yeah. down-res version of uh, Captain Toad for the Nintendo Wii U. So if, if you go to his website, which is, or I'll paste it in, in the chat. It's it's martinmagny.com. Um, he lists the three apps here, and he's got a little sort of picture of himself playing uh, playing madly on a game of some type. You can see the you can see the blocks roll there. Is to me, it's very similar to uh, to a sort of. Uh, uh, Minecrafty kind of uh, game, and I'm pretty sure my my grandsons have this because they like playing these. One of them likes making levels, and the other like was likes playing in them. So, Mark, you were saying that you think the play the the payment model is uh, something to try out, eh? Well, I don't know. It's I I, I kind of think it it won't do as. And again, this is just all uh, supposition. I don't, I don't I don't have any idea if it's true or not, but. Uh, I, my my intuition tells me that it probably won't do as well as something like, for example, what Black Box does, where mm-hmm. if you want to continue in the game, you have to pay a little more, and once you're hooked, yeah, you're probably going to pay a little more. Uh, you know, that type of thing tends to tends to pay very well, as far as I know. Right? Um, that's the whole premise for the for the freemium model. So I, I kind of think this won't work as well as that because people are either going to pay or they're not going to pay for something like this. Right. I, I think it's not likely that someone's going to play for a while and then suddenly decide to pay. Although maybe, you know, maybe there's some threshold where you people will say, you know, I've been playing this for so long. Okay, I'll give him something for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it it's possible. I don't, I don't know. It'd be real interesting to find out. It's sort of the tip jar model, and and actually just yeah. to, to I just noticed here that uh, it's available on Google Play as well, which sort of tells me that it's it's uh, probably built with Unity, right, mm-hmm. to get it cross platform. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm looking here at his um, his profile page on his own website, and and I think it's worth pointing out that uh, you know he had uh, sort of a normal job at a place called Linden Lab. Um, right. Uh, they ended up he actually had something that he sold to Linden Lab. Uh, he saved up some money, uh, figured that if he seriously reduced its spending, he'd be able to work on his own project. So he quit his job, moved to a cheap apartment in a small town called um, Advitaberg, and he's a full-time indie developer. And I just looked at the exchange rate. So $31.99 US, which is the largest in-app purchase payment, would be 265.12 Swedish krona. So, so this isn't a guy who, I mean, like, there's a fair point where like, this isn't a guy who's living in Seattle or Silicon Valley. Uh, he specifically chose a much cheaper place to go to, even in his own country. But what's the buying power of a Swedish Krona? I have, I have no idea. Not the slug, not the slightest. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but if you remember, there was a talk at, uh, um, 360 iDev last year where, a uh, gentleman was talking. He was a game de- indie developer, and he sort of said one of the one of the things if you really want to be an indie developer is move out of the big cities and move move off into something because you don't need to be in New York City or San Francisco or even Toronto to to do this kind of activity. If you can, if you want to downscale and move to a cheaper cheaper uh, uh, place to live, then then you can afford to be self sufficient, right? Right. So has- in Sweden, 
the typical, let's see, rent per month, um, one bedroom outside of city center. Cause it sounds like he lives in a sleepy town, not like Stockholm or something mm-hmm. is 4,922 Krona. Uh, for example, internet would be 238 Krona. So if you buy, if you know, all he needs is one person to buy the 3199, there you go. He's got uh, internet for a whole month. That doesn't well, sound too needs, bad. Yeah. He needs 20, 20 or 25 or so to, to pay for rent, which is not that bad either, I suppose. <laughs> in a month. My mouth right? Yeah. That you said it was around two hundred krona? Yeah, two hundred and thirty eight krona, yeah. Uh, having said that, getting twenty or thirty people a month to pay thirty two dollars for an app is is no uh, easy feat. Right, no, yeah. As we've all seen. But I like I said, I could imagine that he could he could probably get a few hundred paying him a buck or two a month easily. Maybe even more, I don't know. Well, and he's been he's been featured in Touch Arcade and a few other places like that. Um, so that's got to help, you know. Um, and you were you were saying, Jaime, you think this might have been the one that some Apple exec um, jumped on, right? I think so. You know, they they promote those every once in a while, and I I think people, you know, they called them out on it. And I I didn't know the context because I I never played this game, and all I saw was what was in the App Store link. But now that I've I've learned more about it. I don't. I don't think it was a fair, a fair judgment. I mean, people might wonder, like, why did this one get called out? Uh, I don't know. But as far as I know, this is this is an indie developer. This is a very small one. This isn't uh, Nintendo or Electronic Arts getting the uh, the other App Store treatment. I think this is kind of what we want out of Apple, isn't it? Like we've we've certainly talked about that on the show. I don't think yeah. we necessarily deserve it. Like we should be expecting it, but it's uh, it's kind of nice to see the little guy get it. Yeah, for sure. So, putting in a little bit of perspective, uh, I'm looking on. Here's here's my pick of the week. It's it's one that everybody knows already. App Annie is a great place to see <laughs> where where uh, where apps compare to each other in terms of rankings. So, in terms of of ranks for downloads, doing quite well. In terms of grossing, not quite as well. You can go look it up yourself if you want to check. Yeah, I usually use. Uh, how well is it doing in the in the U.S. market as a rough a rough estimate of, of how you know how well financially it's doing? And it's, sure, yeah, it's uh, not that great. So who knows? Yeah, that's my pick. Yep, cool deal. So somebody downloaded. I heard it playing on somebody's screen. Is that you, Jaime? No, it's probably Mark. <laughs> uh, I didn't actually download. I just looked at the at oh the, the video. Uh, video. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Remember, Tim, I'm always running shush, which may or may not be causing my audio problems, so it's very unlikely that it was me. Okay, right, right. So, hey, Aaron, if people want to find you on the interwebs, wherever they look? Go to Twitter, at Aaron Vay. And hi, man, where people look? On Twitter as at Dev the Hair. And Mark? Email markr at smapsoft.com. Alrighty, um, my name is Timitra. I'm T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on Twitter, and you can reach us on MTJC underscore podcast. Don't forget the, um, what am I forgetting? Ask MTJC hashtag. If you want to ask us a question, we'd love to hear back from you. Um, and of course, you can get some more information in the show notes. So that's it. Uh, I'm going to say and scene now for Aaron. Um, Shouldn't we say goodnight first? Oh, let's say goodnight. Yeah, goodbye. Yeah, bye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. 
You've just experienced the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you'll find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items that we talk about on the show, picks for the episode, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website and write a review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press the recommend button. It really helps others find out about the show. You can also follow the show on Twitter at MTJC underscore podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can pledge any amount on patreon.com slash MTJC. Thanks again for listening. Mark, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> what is even the point of you, man? Come on. Sounds like a good spot for me to come in. I'm a Lopez. Hey. 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 Hello. Like the fun. No, I haven't haven't gotten back to it yet. I'm still trying to. The the two options that you gave me, I haven't tried yet. As I moved on to some other bits, but I I need to come back to that. So so I, I was curious though because when I was talking to you about custom layout with collection view. Um, there, there is a collection view I've seen where it's kind of an infinite scroll. Is that what you're kind of looking for, or, or you want to be able to you want to be able to have the the entire um, cells and collection views all zoom up when you? Yeah. So imagine that you're stitching together one big photo from several right several oh, yes, photos, yes, yes. and then yeah. you would be able to zoom in and out and pan around to sort of see detail at arbitrary spots. Right. Right. Sorry, Jaime, what was this about a collection view? I, I think I might have missed this. Yeah, so I, I was running into a, a problem where I said, oh, well, we need to take a series of photos and more or less visually stitch them together as one photo. Um, and a collection view lent itself quite well to doing that. Like a uh, montage? Or a collage, rather? Uh, think of it more like a yeah. vertical film strip. Oh, okay. Okay. So, like, one butted up against the other. Right. And... Right. Um, I said, oh, well, UI collection view is a subclass of UI scroll view, so I should yeah. just be able to set the zoom scale and everything's done. Um, and it's not. Like, it refuses to, to zoom in that particular way. Oh. I tried all oh. sorts of things, and it just went completely haywire um, with whatever I tried. I wonder if the collection view flow layout is interrupting that. No, I think it's, I think it's just because the, the view for zoom and scroll view... Uh, has to refer to a view that takes up the entire content size of the scroll view. Yeah. And the collection view doesn't work that way. It has multiple cells, which are all subviews of the collection view, uh, yeah. that are all kind of on parallel level in the hierarchy. Yeah, I think you'd, you'd need to sort of have some... You'd have, to, you'd have to sort of do a custom layout to get away from the flow layout part of it. But um, And you'd, I think because each cell has a, has a content size in it as well, right? So you'd want to, if you were trying to do a zoom, like you're saying, Jaime, you'd have to zoom in that, you have to expand that frame size and then expand the entire size of the collection view. But like I said, I've seen, I've seen a custom layout where, and I've got the code for here somewhere that where it's a, um, and it's just a series of photographs, but it's just like you, it's as if it's like an infinite scroll left and right, up and down. 
um, you can just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and, and uh, stuff fills in. You've probably seen that kind of like layout in, in some apps before. I think the home screen apps like that. Well, the, the specific question was, was how to do how to zoom a collection view. Yeah. So yeah. So Jaime, if you don't use a collection view, then you can just use the standard like tile view settings for, uh, for scroll view, right? If you look at, uh, look at some of the old WWDC talks, back from like probably 2011 or 2012 or so there there were whole talks devoted to kind of this exact type of situation where you have a whole bunch of photos that you want to stitch together and, and do all this stuff with it so you might want to check that out you lose a lot of the the niceness and the ease of setup of a collection view you lose all that of course because you're using a raw scroll view but yeah. it would work the way you're you're thinking and it wouldn't really be that hard at all. I mean, you just get the size of the images, and you can manually drop one below the other in a scroll view. Yeah, sure. Super easy. Yeah, I was considering um, CI. Sorry, CA tiled layer because that's the one. Yeah, yeah. In this case, um, we can't necessarily just have photo after photo because it'll get very very large real quick uh, with these really high quality photos. So I didn't I didn't think that. Um, simply just stitching them together as one giant photo and shoving them in a scroll view was going to work. I didn't actually try that because I was concerned about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you might be able to do something tricky, which is, which is keep the content size of the scroll view at some reasonable size, larger than the size of like a three by three grid or 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 make it exactly a three by three grid uh, of, of their photo size. And then as you scroll, swap out the one on... If you scroll left, you scroll, uh, swap out the one on the right with the new one. Oh, that's and, smart. I like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically... We used to do this all the time with... If you wanted to make like a, a one-up photo viewer back, back in the day before there were things like page view controllers, that's how you would do it. You'd basically have a set of three... You'd have a scroll view, three wide, and have three photos in there at any given time. And use the delegate methods when you scroll sort of halfway in one direction you you remove the one on the left and stick a new one on the right and just keep doing that really quickly behind the scenes it's actually it doesn't have to be that quick because it's not that uh performance uh uh, intensive intensive intensive, yeah (laughs) so yeah so that would probably work i mean it's it's a little tricky in this case because it's because well, assuming that it has to go in in two dimensions, it gets a little bit tricky with the math. But probably not even that bad. If it's only one dimension, it's actually really easy. I mean, even have code to do it in one dimension somewhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool, cool. Yeah, in this case, yeah. the the collection view only goes in one direction at vertical. So that's, oh, okay. that's nice. Um, when you see zoom in and pan around, like that changes things. But it's still essentially a vertical collection view or mm-hmm. series of images. Yeah. Yeah, then this cool. this technique would definitely work. Then um, to use this, just use a scroll view, a, a plain old scroll view, and do the swapping. That would work for sure. So go ahead, Mark. What, what did you find? I found the link to the WWDC video that I was talking about. To? Let me post it in the uh, 2011. Woof. Yeah, yeah it's, well, you know, uh, around that time, every every at every WWDC, I mean, the probably the best talk that you could go to was. The one on scroll views. There was this, these two mm-hmm. people who gave it every year. And they were really, really good, and just they just told you how to do a lot of really, really cool stuff. I mean, now with page page view controllers and collection views, it's it's a lot less relevant. 
but mm-hmm. uh, but back then when none of those things existed, they were really great. It's old, but it's a good, but it's a good one. It's an oldie but a goodie. Mm-hmm. Cool. Eliza Block, of course. Oh yeah. Oh, you guys know her? Yeah. Yeah. She's famous. She does all the great uh, dub dub presentations. Oh, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Big UI yeah. kid engineer. Yep. Uh, good stuff.